and please settle down. Now we are ready to start. We'll continue tonight with the reading and the explanations, the yogic interpretation of the teachings given by Krishna to Arjuna as in the fundamental text of Oriental wisdom, of Indian wisdom, the Bhagavad Gita. We are about to conclude tonight the chapter 3, which has been a very, a very rich chapter in which Krishna started presenting finally the basics of karma yoga and showing how a wise being can act in the world without being tainted by the action, how to transform action into a reproachment, into a coming closer to the divine. Karma yoga for the people living in the 21st century is an essential teaching because very few people today consider the possibility of going into reclusion, into withdrawing from the world, into living a hermetic lifestyle. And therefore, since our lives are marked by action, we have to understand action in its full spiritual way. So, in this chapter, Krishna spoke about the principles of karma yoga, such as action is superior to inaction, fundamental, fundamental teachings. He separated the sacred action, the action in rituals and religious sacrifice. That was a very, very significant parenthesis, which gave us the opportunity to reveal some fundamental secrets about the science of sacrifice. And finally, he gave lots of examples, including himself, but not in an immodest way, about how action has to continue, how the divine consciousness continues acting, how he himself as an avatar is down there incarnated on planet earth together with Arjuna and he does work, he doesn't stay, although he has nothing to accomplish whatsoever and actually he could very well relish in paradise and still he is there. And he therefore says, you have to do this action, he tells to Arjuna, because it is your duty, if you don't do your duty, the world falls apart. He is giving lots of arguments, which all of them have the same one end. He keeps telling to Arjuna, Arjuna, the fact that you now you would like to buck out of this just because you are a coward or because you don't understand, it's not a solution. It's actually the worst choice you can have. And he inserted in the shloka number 34 with which we concluded the last reading, he concluded again reminding some of the teachings from the chapter 2 where he was speaking from this Raja Yogic standpoint where he was analyzing again the senses and the mind that because of the senses the mind gets corrupted. The simple version of this teaching being that your mind and senses produce attachment. Whatever you like, you get attached. Either it's excellent food, or it's a delightful sensation, or it is injecting heroin in your veins, or whatever it is. If it is very pleasant, you want it again. There it produces addiction. And therefore, this addiction, this desire, as well as the fear from what you don't want, they produce turmoil in the mind. This turmoil disturbs the spirit, then there is no peace, 
there is fear and rejection. The human life is ruled by this fear and rejection and thus the spirituality disappears. And that's why he says, let no man come under the sway of the senses and the mind, for both indeed are enemies besetting the path. As I told you last time, Krishna makes this statement in a very neutral way and he doesn't say how you should do it. How do you do for not coming under the sway of those, of the senses? And here, the world spirituality as well as yoga in India has given two almost diametrically opposed solutions. One of them, which is the one which leaps to the eye, is the Vedantic solution in which not to come under the sway of the senses, you have to kind of kill the senses, stay away from the senses, distance yourself away from the senses, and that is the ascetic methodology present in almost all the religions and forms of spirituality. And then the tantric spirituality, which is more complex, more sophisticated, more difficult to understand, and in a certain way more of like playing with a fire, is to get rid, not to be under the sway of the emotion, by saturating that emotion and by transfiguring it, because by transfiguration everything is God, everything comes from God. Every sensation, either it's a hot cup of hot chocolate, or it's a sunset, or it's whatever other pleasure of the senses, it is divine, and therefore Tantra says, through the pleasure of the senses, you can actually reach the same, but still you have to be not possessed by them, you just have to use them wisely. So here Krishna does not venture to give a solution of how to stay away, he just reminds the principle. And in the shloka number 35, with which we start tonight's reading, Krishna is actually having a formulation which has stirred many people and which is very difficult if you take it alone like this, because for many people this subject is not clear in one's life and people don't see it. Let me first read it. People would say, because one can perform it, one's own dharma, though lesser in merit, is better than the dharma of another. And he even continues saying, better is death in one's own dharma, the dharma of another brings danger. He says, you should do your dharma. Dharma is a word which is equivalent today with religion, religiousness, but the more correct translation of it, which is generally given actually, is righteousness. Dharma is the order of the universe. In a very, if we stretch this meaning, Dharma would be like the will of God. It is the way things are supposed to be. So Krishna says, there is a Dharma, there is a universal Dharma, the righteousness, the ultimate manifestation of this Dharma, for example, is the fact that the meaning of life on this planet Earth is evolution. If you do not evolve, you are betraying the Dharma. This planet has been created so as to give to spirits the possibility to incarnate under various forms of life, 
very primitive spirits incarnated as amoebas, more developed spirits incarnated as trees, even more developed spirits incarnated as chimps, and slightly more evolved spirits than that incarnated as humans. All the amoebas and the trees and the chimps and the humans evolve. It's exactly like everybody is on the same river, but some are up the river, some are lower down the river, some are near the ending of the river, but still everybody is on the same river. That's why we and the trees, we are brothers. We are all evolving. The trees have the same dharma as us. They are spirits evolving in this universe. And the cosmic consciousness has created this soap bubble, which is the planet Earth, and which for sure is not the only soap bubble in this universe. And on this isle, on this island, on this oasis, which is the Earth, life, biological life with intelligence and even with consciousness in humans is possible. And thus different beings incarnate, everyone at their own existential level, and every life they live is a little step forward in the chain of evolution. That's why the law of life, if you want to simplify, the Dharma is evolution. Life is just something which supports evolution. Life is meant for evolution. And we evolve either we know it or not. People evolve even when they don't do anything because that's the way life is created. Indian gurus say when you breathe, although unconsciously, your breath repeats hamsa, 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 the famous mantra, hamsa or soham, if you put it the other way around. And therefore, even when you do nothing in your life but just convert oxygen in carbon dioxide, which means all your life is about eating, sleeping and procreating. You don't do more than that. You live almost like an animal. And yet, you still evolve. Because the river flows. You can't stop in the evolution. That's why even when you do stupid things, even when you take wrong decisions, even when you drown yourself into suffering, even when you do something which sends you to hell, even your trip to hell and the tremendous suffering which follows for a long time after, it still serves to the evolution. It's just a bitter lesson that you learn the hard way. And of course, Krishna would be happier if you wouldn't go to hell, because evolution does not need to involve suffering. But when you look at the soap opera, when you look at the telenovela in which all this planet lives, exception made of 0.1% of men and women who are choosing to live in wisdom, everybody else chooses to live the hard way. Everybody else chooses to bang their, wall, their head against the wall and splash their brains uh, across it. Because nobody wants to believe. How long time will it take before people would believe that there is a law of karma? The law of karma is outlined a thousand years before Buddha. Buddha didn't bring any novelty with it. The law of karma exists across the whole spiritual teachings of the world being expressed in the Western hermetic teachings or others as do unto others as you shall be done as you want it done unto yourself. With the measure with which you measure unto others, with the same measure God shall measure unto yourself. And such statements. And yet, do people believe in karma? 
People do not look what's happening on the planet Earth in this minute. War, torture, destruction, pollution, tens of thousands of people dying of starvation, children every day. The whole caboodle is happening on the Earth and it's done by people. Those people couldn't care less that Krishna talked about karma. So even a simple thing like karma is a city in China for most people. Like people hear and they shrug their shoulders and they say, yeah, yeah. And then when it comes to things, you still want to shoot the bastard. When somebody steps on your toes, you still want revenge. And somebody tells you revenge is not right because revenge simply serves the law of karma. You are just going to feed your karmic chain endlessly. The solution which Buddha gave, as well as Jesus, but let's talk about Buddha because he spoke explicitly about karma, is not to take revenge. Buddha simply said, forgive. Stop. In the moment when you stop and forgive, the chain of karma is broken and you can interrupt it and you can... And how many people have learned from that? Very few people truly, in practice, govern their lives according to that. As soon as things get bitter, people throw out the window the teachings of Krishna and of Jesus, and they start acting according to their gut. Wisdom can go to hell. I have to do this or that. That's the problem. And that is why the Dharma, there is a Dharma, but this Dharma is again betrayed very often. The Dharma is evolution. But evolution usually happens in painful ways to most of the people because people don't want to learn from wisdom to reach selflessness, to reach universal unconditional love, to reach compassion, to reach generosity, to reach noble feelings. Take some of the most obnoxious human beings that you have known in your life and try to figure out what would it take for those people to become noble, compassionate, selfless, loving, and everything. It would take a miracle. In the linear evolution in which they go, it can't happen. The message of Jesus was so difficult to swallow by the Roman Empire that it took 50,000 people dying in the Colosseum and other places before people started living their lives like this. It was such a leap, such a quantum leap in consciousness for a whole community, collectively, to move to some teachings like that. Because the world in which they lived before was barbarous, bloody, revenge-oriented. It, it contained no selfless love and no such noble things. And that's why, um, again and again, evolution, unfortunately, takes a push. Ah, that you as a yogi listen to the Ahimsa lecture and you say, I want to live in Ahimsa from now on and although I shall be provoked a few times, I'm just going to learn Ahimsa like Mahatma Gandhi did and taught. But it was not easy. Mahatma Gandhi himself had to make tremendous efforts. His disciples had to make tremendous efforts. The whole of India at some point had to make tremendous efforts of restraint simply because people preferred to behave like animals than listen to the injunction of nonviolence. And that's why 
again and again I say evolution for exception made for yogis and other wise people who choose to refrain themselves, who choose to discipline themselves in the name of something superior. For everybody else, the learning happens the hard way. And because of this, evolution being the law of this world, there is a lot of pain in the world, as you can see. You can be sure that if everybody on this planet would choose to evolve, maybe not to evolve as much as Milarepa and Ramakrishna, Maybe some people don't have the stomach to become that. Their, their legs are too weak to sustain such a race, such, such an amazing accomplishment. But at least to evolve a little bit. If evolution happens in 5,000 lifetimes, then you could make a little bit of one thousandth of what Ramakrishna did. And if everybody would say, this life I'm going to lay one more brick on the wall of my evolution, then there would be no pain. It's like you've done your job. It's like you've done your homework. If you've done your homework, then Mother Nature doesn't need to kick you in the butt to send you forward, because you already sent yourself forward. And thus, the Dharma means what is wanted, what is right. It means the righteousness. In the Old Testament, they said, let us fulfill everything in all righteousness. The righteousness, what is right, what God himself would like. It is the, the things which are pleasant into the eyes of God. And this Dharma applies to the whole universe, applies to the planet on which we live. Like there may be planets which have a different Dharma than this planet. Different great masters who analyze this, they said there are other worlds in which the Dharma is not like on our planet. Different lokas, different planes of the universe, they are given by the Creator different Dharmas. They have different purposes in this universe. They serve different goals. And thus, there is a Dharma of this world. There is a Dharma of every country, of every race, of every continent, of every clan, family. There are car dharmas for all sorts of units. And of course, there is the dharma for each individual. In the moment when in the first lectures of yoga, in the night one of our yoga courses, in the lecture, what is yoga? I am asking you and everybody, why are you here? Why are you here in Kopangan tonight? And why are you here on the planet Earth? The answer to that would be, if you had it, your personal dharma. Your dharma is the answer to that question because it simply says, what are you supposed to do? The divine consciousness sent you to the kiosk to buy the newspaper. So your dharma is to bring back the newspaper. That's your dharma. That's why your life has been created. Every human being, as well as humanity as a whole, has a dharma. In the old days, the society was governed in a different way because people were more simple. The intelligence was not developed in the way in which it is de developed today. People were having less and less of this intelligence, which in yoga psychology we call manas. Manas is the lowest form of intelligence, but it's the technical intelligence, the discursive intelligence, the intelligence which allows us to write texts of law, texts of philosophy, texts of this and that. 
and when you can look at the history of humanity in all the cultures, you see that people a thousand, two thousand, three thousand and more years ago, they were having a very simplified type of consciousness which resembled more with a consciousness in the dreams. For many people, the myth and the reality would mix. The gods of Olympus, they were living among the Greeks and so were the satyrs and the nymphs and the mermaids and the goblins and the ogres and the elves and all that which do not belong to this world. They belong to a form of the mind called buddhi which is like the mind of meditation, dream and it's a form of mind which is more sketchy more it's not like one is one and two is two and this is so and this is in your dreams you don't think like this in your dreams your mind is much more based on emotions and there is a sort of a sketchy way of thinking it's difficult to explain this at this point and that's not the purpose the purpose what i'm saying is that every for every time of humanity has its slightly different law for example, in India, the texts of spirituality clearly, clearly stated in several places that even the spiritual path and teachings are not the same for the different yugas. Because people of today in Kali Yuga, they cannot practice the same spirituality as people in Treta Yuga two yugas ago. Because those people two yugas ago, they were slightly different psychosomatically, psychologically, mentally, slightly, not radically. And that meant that they could use or they had to use different methods. The texts of Indian spirituality say in Satya Yuga, the golden age of mankind, people were using the Vedas. Today, any one of you who would have the curiosity or had the curiosity to read at least five pages from the Vedas, you will not understand anything because the Vedas are just an endless series of hymns, votive hymns, devotional hymns, hymn to Varuna, hymn to Agni, hymn to Aditi, hymn so lovely, it's like poetry, it's like the Tibetan, uh, I'm sorry, like the Egyptian book of the dead describing uh, sejours in astral world. So what's the big deal? How am I going to get to the arousing of Vishuddha Chakra with this? How am I going to open my crown chakra with this? How am I going to rise, rise my Kundalini to Sahasrara and keep it there for 30 minutes? See, this is what I said, rise your Kundalini to Sahasrara and keep it there for 30 minutes. This is an engineering thought and it belongs to Kali Yuga. It belongs to people who are very mechanical, concrete, to details like we are today to people who invented science. In the old days, as even Albert Einstein pointed, there was no difference between science and religion because the religion is science. You are looking for the truths of the universe, but you are looking through an intuitive function, not by trying to do mathematics of it. And that is why the, what I'm trying to say here is this kind of humanity, which is scientific, rational, millimetric, and very, very discriminative in this way, needs a different kind of knowledge. With the Vedas, you cannot transform the Vedas into a spiritual practice. And after the Vedas in Treta Yuga, there came the Puranas. And the Puranas are a bunch of legends which the Indians are crazy about still today. 
that one day Shiva to put down Brahma and Vishnu to show them who's the boss turned into a pillar of light, into a Shivalinga made of light, and the bottom of it went deeper than the ocean, and the tip of it went beyond the clouds of the sky, and they tried to find the end of it, one of them dove and one of them flew, and they couldn't find the end of it, and thus they said, oh Shiva, you are the best. These are legends. Legends, legends, legends. It's exactly like the legends of Mount Olympus, like the Greek legends. That one day Shakti was taking a bath and to make sure that nobody disturbed her, she scratched some of this dead skin over her body and with the dirt on it and she made a little thing and she, con she constructed Ganesha. And she put Ganesha at the door of her bathroom and said, let nobody come inside because I'm taking my shower. No, and the legend continues, That's, these are Puranas and the Indians love them, it's like storytelling. But can you actually make anything spiritual out of this? Can you do a practice out of this? Hardly. Why? Because these were addressed to people in Treta Yuga. And people in Treta Yuga were simple-minded, with an excellent faith. They would hear a story and they would be in Samyama with it. They would be transported where this story came from. And they would see in front of their eyes Shakti and Ganesha and Brahma and so on and they would participate to these things and for them this would be like a sort of initiatic theater it would be like a sort of magic theater and reading a Purana they would have a spiritual experience that yoga is not practiced so much because modern people are cynical skeptical they read a story and then they scoff and they say and so what's the big deal so then you need to stand on your head. If you, can't, if you can't be with Ganesha and Shakti and Vishnu and this, then you need to stand on your head. You need to do 10 days of Oshava diet. You need to do pranayama. Why? Because you are a rigid idiot and you need to soften yourself. You cannot live at that level of consciousness. You cannot dream and participate because the faith and everything is gone and you have to use yoga to become flexible again, not flexible physically, although that's an aspect of it, to become soft in your spirit. And after the Puranas, in, in Dvapara Yuga, there came the Upanishads, the famous Upanishads, tens, there are more than a hundred Upanishads in the whole of the Indian culture. And even the Upanishads have been surpassed. And the last stage is the Tantras, the Agamas, the Tantric texts, because even the Upanishads, they are not clear. They are still fuzzy about some things. And then the Tantric texts come, like Shat Chakra Nirupana, the description of the six chakras. And they say, in your perineum, there is something which looks like a lotus flower with four spokes. And the first spoke is called Virananda, the bliss of heroism. And the second spoke is called Yogananda, the bliss of union. And this, so basically this is the engineering of the human being. It's like, let's take it down to the most concrete. Like, if you can't do it even like this, then you are damaged goods and you have to go to the dustbin of history. Like, there must be a method which works for everybody. But the methods which worked in the, in the Satya Yuga, they were not the methods which work today, because the humanity is different. And therefore, in the old days, 
the society, the yogis, the people to whom Krishna was speaking at that time, they were different. Because everybody from the very beginning, one of the cares of the Hindu ancient society was that everybody should know their dharma. And how did you know your dharma? You knew your dharma by a method, by a system, which today has become totally unacceptable. And we must admit at the same time that it's totally obsolete. Like, no, it's not only unacceptable because people have grown so stupid that they can't understand the wisdom of it. It's also obsolete. And perhaps Buddha was the first one who said, this system is out. Now its time has passed. That's the system of the castes. The four castes is a system which comes from the laws of Manu. Manu, the legislator, in old, old days before Krishna, before Rama, in the archetypal days, there comes the archetypal legislator for the Vedic society and gives the laws of it. I don't know if you ever bothered to read the laws of Manu, those of you who are interested in Indian culture and antiquity. But of course, the, the laws of Manu are amazing, but they are very, very, very old and very, 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 very old-fashioned. And they simply say the thing, in a society which is harmonious, in a society where the parents live in harmony and prayer, there will be no sense of humor of the divine like creating mischief in the world. And thus, in a society which is in harmony, you will always have the right person in the right place. Which means when a spirit will be incarnated, that spirit will automatically incarnate orderly. It will incarnate exactly where it has to come. And that simply says, you are never going to get a Ramakrishna born in a low caste. Spirits like Ramakrishna will always be born in Brahmin families. So their natural dharma, dharma, that's what Krishna is talking about. When you are a Brahmin, your dharma is not to do work for money, never. Brahmins are forbidden to do business or profit. And the Brahmin is only the sattvic holder of spiritual knowledge. The Brahmin can be a clairvoyant, the Brahmin can be an astrologer, the Brahmin can be a guru of yoga, the Brahmin can be a meditator, and the Brahmin is the one who is the depository, the repository of all the spirituality of the society in which he lives. Not all the Brahmins know all of it because it's too gigantic, but every Brahmin would become specialized on something. There are simple Brahmins who are just priests in a countryside temple. They are pujaris. They do just the, the cult. They are the ones that officiate the pujas. And they just have to have learned the mantras from their fathers and know the ritual by heart and do the rituals. Know what you do for a funeral, know what you do for a childbirth, know what you do for a marriage, know what you do for this and that. And then there would be Brahmins like Shankaracharya or like others of the kind. And those are the luminaries of the society. Those are the spiritual luminaries of a generation or of many, many generations. 
in the time of Krishna, the law was still that by consecration, every family brings in their bosom the right spirit. That if it would be that a Ramakrishna would be born as a farmer, the farmer boys were not even learning to read and write because it was not considered necessary for them. Then you would keep Ramakrishna born in a human body away from studying the Vedas and the Shastras and all the rest and reaching his potential for which he was born. Such a thing was inconceivable. In their times, nobody said this. Like, of course, the skeptical person today would say, what if as a Brahmin you get an idiot, you get a gorilla, you get a primitive animal idiotic soul who puts to shame the whole caste of the Brahmins, he is simply unworthy to be a Brahmin. And what is if in the lowest caste, the Kshudras, the servants, you get suddenly a Milarepa, a Shankaracharya born there, and you suppress it, and you don't give it access to the highest things of knowledge. Wouldn't that be a catastrophe? The people at the time of Krishna, they never considered that. They, the faith was, the perception was, that the society was still running by consecration, that this consecration was still working, that because everybody did their dharma, the whole chariot was still running. At a later time, the faith, the spirituality, started decreasing, because of this, the Brahmins started losing their spirituality. It always starts from the top down. There is a proverb in the country where I come from, which says a fish always starts stinking and rotting, starting with its head. The first thing which gets rotten in a fish is the head. And that simply says, in everything, the decay starts from the top. And of course, the regeneration starts from the grassroots. It's the other way around. That is an important thing, but we don't have time to comment it right now. And therefore, the Dharma started getting confused, and then people started getting born more randomly. And the first one that signaled this phenomenon out to the society was Buddha. And Buddha said the caste system stopped working. Now we can have inferior spirits born as Brahmins and high spirits born as Kshudras. And therefore, to apply literally the caste system is a nonsense. It's a crime. And thus Buddha immediately stood against the caste system as it is until today. The caste system is to a large extent, inimaginably large for somebody who didn't live in India for quite a while, is still implemented in the Indian society today in the 21st century. Although Buddha 25 centuries ago said it's not okay, although many, many gurus and many, many luminaries of India finishing with Mahatma Gandhi and all the modern ones, Shivananda and Aurobindo and all the others, they said, yes, it's right and it's been said for 2,000 years. It's out, it's obsolete and still the Indians are so engraved, so etched in their minds by the laws of Manu that still nobody can take that. It's part
partly still being applied in modern contemporary India. And thus, this is where it comes from. Once upon a time, this was a perfect system. It was working like clockwork. Krishna supports it. And in those days, therefore, the Dharma was a clear thing. Like, in this case, Arjuna, to whom Krishna speaks, is a Kshatriya. He is the aristocratic class. He is the equivalent of the aristocrats from the West. He is a knight. He is born to be a king, a ruler. And therefore, he is the one who has to bear arms, and he is the one who has to protect the masses. Because originally, the aristocrats, the Kshatriyas, the samurai, they were the ones entitled to bear weapons, the only ones, and they were like the militia of the society. They were the rulers, and they were supposed to protect the weak. When you look in the codes of the samurai or knights or this, it's always save the damsel in distress, protect the widows, the children, the elderly, the weak. There should be no theft, there should be no persecution, there should be no torture, there should be like their rules were exactly like a police or a system of law would do today, protect the weak and thus serve justice. And Arjuna is such a person. He is born to be a samurai. And Krishna tells him, you are about to flush down, your to down the toilet your dharma. Today, you are confronted with a great evil. And this evil, it's your relatives, it's Duryodhana and his brothers. But this evil, even if it's your cousins, it's still incontestable. You know it as clear as I know it, said, tells Krishna implicitly, that you are about to enforce the law. This is the law of God. And if you don't do it like a kshatriya, like a samurai, then who the heck is supposed to do it? The farmers? The servants? The brahmins who have no military education? And Are you an idiot? It's like this is your dharma. You are born to it and you should not betray your dharma. That's why in the old days in India, people would always qualify their dharma, first of all according to the caste. If you are a Brahmin, you automatically, if your mother and father are Brahmins, you know what your Dharma is. People say, well, you should, shouldn't you meditate? Who am I? Who am I? Why am I here? Yes, of course, in yoga we say that because nowadays things are way more complicated, as we'll see in a minute. But in that time, things were simplified. People were simple and they were not raising so questions. You will not find a Brahmin who would stand up and say, Oh, I think it's all wrong. I'm a Brahmin, but I just want to toil the earth and I want to go in the Vashiya caste. I want to become a farmer. That would have been betraying your Dharma. It would mean like you are born in the wrong caste by accident. And they couldn't believe that. They would not believe that. They simply said everybody is where they are for a reason. You belong to this. That's your karma. That's your Dharma. It's not only your karma that you can say, oh, you are born in a princely family. You have the karma to be born in a royal family. It's not only your karma. It's also your dharma. Your dharma means the universe awaits from you 
that you should demonstrate that you are born rightly in this place and in this way and you should fulfill your duties. It's not a mistake. And thus, in, look, in traditional societies it is still believed. Even the king of Thailand is considered by the Buddhist believers a bodhisattva. To become the king of a nation is a dharma of a very high spirit which is a bodhisattva and that very high spirit has to give the demonstration of compassion, selflessness, noble thoughts, and not to live for oneself, but to live for the good of the society and to live for the good of the humanity. And guess what? Until today, most of the Thais consider that their present king did just that. That's why they worship him, because they say this man has been our protector for 50 years. He could have simply got rich and go in Kenya to visit rhinoceroses. You know, he could have done whatever he wanted. And he did not. In 1980s or something when the Asian economies plummeted, Thailand was the only country which did not because the king took his money out of the Swiss banks, a billion dollars and more, and he put them into the Thai banks. And he said, if Thailand goes down, I go down together with Thailand. Not many rich families do that, have this loyalty, like I'm the captain of the ship, and if the ship goes down, I go down with the ship. That means to be a king. It's not to benefit only from the benefits and the honors of it. It means that you are the steward, you are the guarant in front of the Buddhas of the past, present, and future of what's happening to your nation. When you die... Shambhala is going to pick you by the collar and say, what did you do while you were a king? It's a dharma. It's a duty. It's a responsibility. It's not just a thing that, oh, it's good to be the king. That's a selfish, primitive, modern, totally forgetful way of looking upon these things. And that's why for them it was clear. You have the dharma of this. Do this. Don't try to be in the dharma of someone else. The problem is that in the modern times this has disappeared to a large extent. We still do have some classes such as the middle class, the upper class, the lower classes and so on based especially on money. Modern society, especially the capitalistic one, is divided mostly according to money. And this may be considered by most people a terrible way of dividing the society, but that shows how deep down the drain we are, how deep in Kali Yuga we are. Point is that today we lost this, like every, you have a child, any one of you two have a child, what is your child? Is your child a Brahmin? Is your child a Kshatriya, a Vashya or a Kshudra? How would you know? Because you don't belong to any caste. We have discarded the system of castes. In the old days, if you were a slave in the Roman Empire, your child would be a slave in the Roman Empire. It was as simple as that. And the slave was a slave, unless it was specifically freed, which did happen, but was a seldom event. And guess what? Paul, which is the most prolific writer after Jesus, who puts on paper the teachings of Jesus and the understanding of his teachings as he sees them, Paul never preached revolution, like 
the Roman Empire, take it from a Christian standpoint. Paul is coming with a message of love of Jesus and so on. And there he is in the middle of the Roman Empire and he is a Roman citizen himself. And one of the typical things is slavery. Did you ever read in the Bible, wrote, those of you who bothered to, to read parts of it, that Paul ever said that slavery should disappear? No. Therefore, for those of you who are social activists and socialists and anarchists and God knows what you are, Paul is an asshole. Because Paul could have said, let's stop the slavery. And he didn't. Actually, Paul says, if you are a slave, be a slave with a lot of heart and do your duties as a slave further on. Be a Christian slave. And if you are a master of slaves, be a good master of slaves, be compassionate and loving to your slaves, and live your life like a Christian master of slaves. Paul never said, if you are a master of slaves, the first thing to demonstrate to me or to Jesus would be that you should immediately liberate all your slaves. No. That's what you would think, maybe. But it is not what Paul thought, and it's not because Paul was conservative, reactionary, right-wing or anything. That was the way the world was in those days and the society could not exist in other patterns with the way human beings were at that time. Then when the schooling system, when the education and other things started coming to the world, many things have changed. Because today, how many people cannot read and write in the Western cultures? Very few. Elementary education is given to everybody. So therefore people are not at the same level anymore. There is a self-consciousness. There is a class consciousness. There is a group consciousness. Like proletarians join hands, you know. Suddenly the proletarians are not just kshudras or vaishyas. Suddenly the proletarians are a class with self-consciousness, which say, we are the foundation of the society, we are the hard-working masses, and the capitalists are exploiting our work, and we have to stand and let's make trade unions, let's make labor unions, let's make all sorts of things to protect our rights. This happened only in the 19th century. It did not exist before that time, and therefore it took some other kind of mental consciousness of the people. And that's why, to make the long story short here, in many societies, the Dharma was a sort of traditional thing. You inherited it from your parents, and the society shows you the natural way. It, are, you know, it was known. If a child in a village in medieval Europe was unusually smart, then he or she would be sent to the monastery to learn to read and write and would be encouraged to rather learn and maybe become a priest, a scholar, a philosopher, whatever they could become in the Middle Ages, rather than becoming just a farmer. So there is a sort of spontaneous thing, but of course, on the other hand, lots of injustice is done and can be done. So here... What Krishna says, if we don't know more, and of course he will say much more, what Krishna says is very provocative. Because Krishna says, you have to live according to your dharma. And let me resume this shloka, because now after so many explanations, it will take a completely new light. 
he says, because one can perform it, one can perform it, that means a samurai can do the job of a samurai because that's how his parents formed him from childhood and that's how the society formed them. Because one can perform it, one's own dharma, your own dharma, though it may be lesser in merit, like you are a kshudra, you are the servant of Saint Paul. Although you are just a humble servant, is better than the dharma of another. Like you try to go in the shoes of the king, or in the shoes of Saint Peter, or in the shoes... It's not your dharma, is it? Isn't it? Your dharma is much better. For example, the secretary of Paramahamsa Yogananda was the secretary of Paramahamsa Yogananda. He was not Paramahamsa Yogananda. He was not becoming the next great leader of the Self-Realization Fellowship. His dharma was to be a good secretary. That was his karma yoga. That was his dharma. And he was doing his dharma. And Krishna says, you more easily reach salvation doing your own dharma than doing the one of another. John Lin, another disciple of Yogananda, was a businessman. And he tried to stop from doing business because now he wanted to do Kriya Yoga. And Yogananda said, do you realize that with your money you are going to buy us lots of ashrams and places and things and we are going to fill up California with Kriya Yoga? So why would you stop from doing business? Continue for, I mean, your Karma Yoga as a businessman is going to do for the Self-Realization Fellowship as much as 200 other people would do together. Go and do it. And Yogananda therefore claims, it is the fact of the Self-Realization Fellowship, that actually John Lin called later, I forgot his name exactly, Janakananda, if I remember correctly, became the next spiritual leader and Yogananda shows him in a photo in his own autobiography in a state of samadhi. He reached samadhi being a millionaire and continuing to do business. Of course he did some Kriya Yoga as well, but he couldn't have done Kriya Yoga as much as if he just dropped all the business and locked himself into a room or into a cave. And yet his Dharma, as Yogananda saw it, his Dharma was to stay there and do some Karma Yoga, because that Karma Yoga served him best. And he reached, somehow, maybe you can say that they fixed it, if you are a skeptical, cynical person, but fact is that the end shows that according to the lore of the Self-Realization Fellowship, Janakananda X. James Lin actually became an enlightened being. He reached Self-Realization and he was even the spiritual next leader. And everybody would consider him in those days in America just a capitalist. He was a millionaire who lived some 50, 60 years ago. Therefore, this is your own dharma is better than the dharma of another. The only big problem in today's world is that everybody would stand up and say, what's my dharma? That's where the difficulty comes. That's where you have to identify it. What is my dharma? is almost equivalent with the question, who am I and why am I here? It's a state of clarity 
where you understand what you are made to do. Are you made to teach spirituality? That would be a Brahmin's Dharma. Are you made to... What is your Dharma? You have to find out. As I say in the first lecture, nobody should tell you what your Dharma is. Not in the modern days. You have to find it out because now the races and the castes are mixed completely and therefore we live in a world of apparent chaos. And you have to distillate out of the chaos of the modern society who you are. What are you born for? And he says, he goes tough, he says, better is death in one's own dharma. If your dharma means that you have to die, I don't know, because you work in the fields and you get a pneumonia while you are plowing the fields, or because you are a warrior and you have to fight on the battlefield and you might die in the battle which comes. It is better to die in your own dharma than the dharma of another one brings danger. People say, what danger? You can die. He doesn't mean physical danger. He means spiritual danger. The real danger is of losing yourself. The real danger is of losing your, your soul. That's why the Bible says, what use is there to a man if he conquers even half of this world, if he loses his soul in the process? If you become like Alexander the Great and you lose your soul, you go to hell. All the Mao Zedun's and Joseph Stalin's and the likes of them, they had a moment of power. And now they are gnashing their teeth in hell. Because they lost themselves. They betrayed their soul in the process. None of them was a conscious enlightened being like Krishna or like Arjuna who did their dharma. They simply said, that's my dharma, I have to do it. No, this awareness did not exist in any of their lives. There was just a huge amount of ego. And that is why, let's read it again. Better is one's own dharma, though devoid of merit, than the duty of another, well discharged. Like you can do the, you are a Brahmin, but you say, I can make shoes, I can manufacture shoes splendidly. I'm so talented in making shoes. The Vedic tradition would say, if you are a Brahmin, forget about manufacturing shoes. It's the dharma of someone else. And even if you do it divinely, it's not your dharma. Stay in your dharma. Again, you can see that that law has become mixed. For example, one of the great, most proeminent spiritual teachers in Kashmir some 20 years ago, actually I'm exaggerating, some 13, 14 years ago, when I visited that place, was a Sufi master. But this great Sufi master was Sufi master only after 6 o'clock in the evening. Until 6 o'clock in the evening, he had a shoe shop in downtown Srinagar. He was a shoe seller. Up till 6 o'clock, he talked shoes. And from 6 o'clock, he talked Sufi. And everybody respected him like being one of the great, great, amazing spiritual teachers. And in the daily life, he lived in the bazaar. He was one of these old, tricky oriental men doing business in the bazaar. And he was a grand master. 
That's why today you can say, what's his dharma? To be a Brahmin-like and teach spirituality and help people get enlightened? Or he was a shoe, he was a Vashya, a merchant, having third caste type of qualities. That's why today this does not exist anymore. These things are, have become garbled, mangled, mixed up. And that is why to elicite your own soul from this, it has become just more complicated. Because there is nobody who can give you a simple answer or a straight answer. Oh, you are a Kshatriya, you are a Brahmin, you are a Kshudra, you are this, you are that. There isn't such a thing. And that's why your soul has to show you exactly where you are. All the, when, when Ramakrishna fell ill, his disciple, Ramakrishna was diagnosed with cancer. And everybody knew cancer, unless a miracle happens, he is going to kick the bucket. And Ramakrishna don't, don't said, don't bother, just do your thing. But one of the disciples of Ramakrishna, of all of them, became totally frantic. Like his guru was dying with throat cancer. And he simply wouldn't go away. He simply stuck to the bed of Ramakrishna. He gave him food. He washed him. He changed the bed sheets. He did everything. He became like the nurse. 24-7, he was the nurse of Ramakrishna. Everybody, and because of this, he didn't have the time to practice. He didn't have the time to go in his bungalow, in his kuti, and practice. And yet, guess what? In the end, he was one of the enlightened disciples of Ramakrishna. And he was called Swami Ramakrishnananda. He became enlightened because all his devotion was not to God, not to this. All his devotion was to his Guru. He just put his devotion into Ramakrishna. That was his Dharma. This man felt, I am a nurse. I'm, I'm a servant, you know. I am just a small person in the world of spirit. My task is to stay here and wash the feet of Ramakrishna. I am not a big thing. I am not trying to be a king or anything. I am just the one who washes my master, my master's body. And he reached enlightenment. Your dharma is much better than somebody else's dharma, even if your dharma is a modest one. The only problem being that, of course, you have to search your heart and see what your dharma is, what you do. Better is death in one's own dharma. The dharma of another is fraught with fear, is fraught with danger. And this fear and danger is not a physical fear or danger. It's the real thing. It represents that if you fail, you lose your soul. You live a life in total disharmony, and that's that's a fiasco, it's a deep level flop. So this is a very provocative, and of course immediately Arjuna is going to leap at it, to jump at it, like, okay, now you open this Pandora's box. And the question on everybody's lips would be, well, how do I know what my Dharma is? Arjuna could not ask this question, because Arjuna was a Kshatriya, and he knew exactly what his dharma was. So for him, this was not valid. That's why actually Arjuna starts from somewhere else with his list of questions. And he asked, his question 
is nevertheless very representative, very, very relevant, and I consider this also a very important teaching in Bhagavad Gita. Arjuna then, when Krishna concluded by telling him, better do your dharma well than trying to be in other people's shoes, then Arjuna said, Krishna, O Vashneya, calls him here, what is it that impels a man to commit sin? Because Krishna implicitly talks about a great sin, you know, it's like you are going to betray your heritage, you are going to betray the whole Dharma, and betraying Dharma is a sin. That's what the definition of sin would be in old Hinduism. Infringement upon Dharma. If you infringe upon Dharma, this becomes a sin. Dharma means many things, I'm reminding to you. Dharma means the natural order of the universe. The natural order of the universe contains even ecology. So therefore, if you pollute an ecosystem and destroy an ecosystem, that's a sin. Because you are destroying the order of things. Nature and the cosmic consciousness have created this universe in a certain way. Destroying it is a sin. It's like you are, you are, it's an aggression against Dharma. And therefore, his question is related, although some might not see the connection. Because he speaks, Krishna was talking to him about Adharma, going against Dharma, sin. And Arjuna says, well, if people do such things, why do they do it? So he says, what is it that impels a man to, he is about to do it himself. But he asks philosophically, what is it that impels a man to commit sin, even involuntarily, as if driven by force, O Vashneya? Or in the reading of Swami Shivananda, but impelled by what does man commit sin, though against his wishes, O Vashneya, constrained as if it were by force? The idea is again very simple. I just told you before how many people did not hear the teachings of Jesus while proclaiming themselves to be part of that. How many people did not hear about the teachings concerning karma which Buddha has given? And do people respect those? Do people observe those? Sometimes. And sometimes they commit sin. They go against blatantly. Very often it happens. And those people, I said, they are like driven by force. They are constrained by some force. Like, I don't want to take revenge on the bastard that killed my child. Can you realize, not, not many of you here are parents. But if you would be a parent and somebody would kill your child in a deliberate way, what would it take for you to refrain from revenge? It's almost superhuman. Most normal human beings would fall prey to that. They would say, the hell with Jesus and the hell with Buddha and the hell with God himself. I am consumed by a fire and I shall not find peace. Therefore, people although they know they shouldn't do this and that, they eventually do it. 
and they are like consumed by a force. They are constrained. They are driven by a force. Like there comes in them, they are like taken by a devil. They are like possessed by the demons. And in that moment, they do the unspeakable, the unthinkable. Christians do things which are inconceivable for Christians. Jews do things which are inconceivable for Judaism. Hindus do things which would be unacceptable for Hindus. Buddhists do things which would be unacceptable for any Buddhist. And yet they do it. And it happens all day long. And therefore, this is something... Here, Arjuna is asking an amazing question because he is asking Krishna about what's the origin of evil. Like there was once upon a time a Sanatana Dharma, a unified Dharma of all the humanity before the Tower of Babel, so to speak, metaphorically. There was a wisdom, there was a knowledge. People knew their place in the universe. People were born in the right place, in the right time. The Dharma was strong. In Kali, in Satya Yuga, say the Hindu Shastras, Dharma is like a cow standing on all its four legs. In Treta Yuga, Dharma is becoming like a limp cow standing on three legs. In Dvapara Yuga, Dharma has become a cow with two legs and it barely can stand anymore. And finally, in Kali Yuga, Dharma stands on one leg and it can't really stand anymore. Therefore, Dharma decreases. In Satya Yuga, people knew what Dharma was because Dharma was standing on four legs. Dharma was strong. Everybody knew what their Dharma was. And they knew, I came to the earth. I'm visiting the planet earth. I've got here 80 years or 800 years to live. And during this time, my Dharma is to do this. That's my natural direction in evolution. That's what the universal consciousness wants out of me. That's what my soul wants me to fulfill. That's what my higher self, that's what my Buddha nature wants me to fulfill in this life. But again, today, there exists a total misunderstanding about this. So, Arjuna is asking a very relevant question. He says, why do people not do what they are supposed to do? Even when they know what the good thing is, they get possessed by emotions and pains so intense that they just freak out and they do anyway all the wrong things. It's a very relevant question and the answer is very relevant. I'm sure that all of you in this room, you have tried to look in your Ahimsa, in your Satyam, into your Brahmacharya, into your Santosha and all those. And often you broke them, you infringed on them. And Arjuna says, why do people do such things? Even when people take beautiful decisions, even when people change their lives, it's not perfect from the very beginning. Not everybody is a Milarepa from day one. People do stupid things. People commit sins. They go against the Dharma. For you, if you like the yogic spirituality, your Dharma is the Yoga Dharma. For you, the Dharma is Yama and Niyama. That's the root of the Dharma for a yogi. First of all, go into Yama and Niyama. And from there, your life is growing up beautifully. So he says, what is the cause of this? And Krishna answers beautifully, technically, clear. 
and there is no ambiguity, his answer is marvelous. Krishna said, it is desire, it is anger, born of Rajas Guna. All those of you who completed the second level of Agama, you should know by now what Rajas Guna is. For those of you who never heard about it, there are the three Gunas, three energies of the universe, which fortunately for you shall be described later in Bhagavad Gita by Krishna himself. These are three basic energies related with Ajna Chakra and related with very, very, very deep levels of Ajna Chakra. So these are energies which are not something which you feel in the daily life when you lift your right arm up and you feel like a cosmic energy flowing through it. That's not it. This is very, very raw, very rough compared to the Gunas. The Gunas are some extremely vast and extremely essential, subtle energies of nature which only people of great clairvoyance and of great spiritual level can actually perceive. Most people in yoga don't feel the Gunas. They know about the Gunas and they de decide or they guide themselves intellectually because they know when I do this I'm on this guna, when I don't do that I'm going in that guna and it's not like they feel it. They just have some norms. That's because the gunas are not easy to feel. The gunas are extremely discreet energies of nature and it takes a lot of spiritual practice to come to feel those. And Krishna pushes the origin of evil, of sin, down to those. He says, actually, the origin of what we call sin is desire and anger. Here he echoes Buddha, because Buddha says the origin of all enchainment, of all samsara, is desire. That people have desires, and their desires keep them prisoners, like somebody who is addicted. Exactly like a drug addict is prisoner to his addiction, exactly in the same way humans are prisoners to their desires. So he says it is desire, it is anger, he gives a specific shape to it, born of Rajas Guna, all-consuming and most evil. Know this to be the enemy here on earth. Like, this is a very radical statement and very clear. Krishna says, Rajas Guna, when it goes out of control, generates so much desire, anger, ambition, that it becomes an all-consuming evil. Worse than Tamas Guna? Yes. Because the person who is in Tamas Guna is just a lazy, inert animal. And the lazy, inert animal will never make what Joseph Stalin did or what Mao Zedong did. They don't have enough ambition and motivation. A person that is driven by Tamas Guna hurts themselves, maybe hurts a few people around themselves through their animal, obscure, dull lifestyle because they are so heavy. But such a person will never be able to participate or to cause a world war or to do what Alexander the Great did or to be consumed like Napoleon 
by the desire to walk into Moscow and to try to kick the ass of the Russians. That's Raja's guna. Only Raja's guna can create this kind of monstrous thing. And unfortunately, the people who are Raja's guna, they are not lazy. They are industrious. So once you get a demented person who is also industrious, there is danger. Because that person will not rest. The tamasic person is always easy to contain because all the time they are like wanting to become couch potatoes. But Napoleon did not want to become a couch potato. So he became a world peril. He became a menace to humanity just because he was too rajasic. And therefore, he says it clear, it's desire, it's anger, born of Raja's guna, all-consuming and most evil. Shivananda says, all sinful and all devouring. Know this to be the enemy here in this world, on this earth. Like Krishna says, on this earth. Arjuna said, why do people commit sin? Break the Dharma. Why do people go against the Dharma? And Krishna says, because some people are too rajasic. Every time when there is rajas, you say, the hell with the teachings, the hell with the Vedas, the hell with Krishna and the hell with the Bhagavad Gita, I am going to do this. That's rajas. That's this desire, all-consuming desire. If you want an approach parallel to it, a medieval philosopher called, if I remember correctly, Guicciardini had a dictum which amused me tremendously at that time and I see its validity all day long. Guicciardini, and I may be wrong about the name of this person, said it is not stupidity that is unforgivable. It is impertinence. I don't know if you see the juice of this statement. Guicciardini says, if you are stupid, you are stupid. God made you stupid. It's like you are cursed with little intelligence. Nobody can blame you that you don't have more intelligence. You are of little understanding. You are of little understanding. Strive to get more understanding. Be humble, acknowledge, I don't have so much understanding and so on. It's not the stupidity which is impardonable. It is the impertinence that the stupid one is juicy, is saucy, is shameless, is impudent. He stands up and starts splashing it all over everybody. Which simply says, if you are stupid, shut up for God's sake. Sit down. Run in a corner. Know your place. No, if you are stupid, at least don't be shameless, don't be impudent. It's not the stupidity which is unforgivable. It is the shamelessness, the impudence. That is realized. That's Raja's guna. Raja's guna means that people of little quality push themselves forward to be leaders, to be... People want to be leaders. And even with Jesus, the apostles, good, lovely Jewish people there with a bit of Manipura in their culture... They immediately ask Jesus, when you shall be no more, who shall be the leader among us? And Jesus told them, in the kingdom of heaven there is no leadership the way you look at it. It's only based on spirituality. Let the most spiritual be the leader. 
and then to make them understand, because he spoke about the path of the heart, he said, let the one who is the most servant and humble among you, that one let it be the leader. Not the one who pushes forward and says, I could assume this, I could do this, I could shoulder this responsibility, me, 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 choose me, put me to do this. That's the shameless one. That's the rajasic one. It's the one who has fire up his ass and wants to push himself in the spotlight. Take the humble one who shuts down, who shuts up in a corner. Take the withdrawn one who says, I don't know if I should push myself into this. That's the good person to be the leader, precisely because he doesn't want to be the leader. Because he is humble and he is not consumed by rajas. So, it is desire, it is anger born of rajoguna, the all-consuming con all and most evil, what epithets. Know this to be the enemy here on earth. So much derives from this. The enemy is rajas. The enemy is desire. The enemy, that's why people can't stay quiet. Everybody wants to stay quiet. I've been so amazed in my life, looking not only at books and things which I know, looking at the concrete people, at the actual people that I knew in my life. And I saw that some of these people, they just had only one desire. They simply said, you know what? My desire is to be just left alone. Please, everybody, I'm not stepping over your toes. Don't step over my toes. Like, it's like, it's the supreme right of everybody, at least to be neutral. I don't want to hate you. I don't want to fight you. I don't want to go against you. To me, you are a very, very, very disturbing person. I'm asking for this simple right. I just want to be neutral to you. You don't exist for me. I don't exist for you. Go. Let's, this is my line and this is, you know, let's play this game like this. Let me just sit down, do my meditation, look up my own belly button, scratch my ears, do whatever I want to do. Leave me alone. There is enough space on this earth for everybody. But no, there is a category of people in this world who don't want to leave you alone. When you try to be neutral, they cross the line, always. There are people who aggress, always. You are, let's take a, an example. No? There is a relationship. A tantric relationship between a man and a woman. And there is always polarity. One is plus, one is minus. It's either the man, the woman. Usually it would be the man, but very often it is the woman in Kali Yuga. And then one of them starts attacking at the other. The other one says, you know what? I can't do better than this. I kind of have reached my limit. Take it or leave it. You know, if you can love me the way I am, if you can accept me the way I am, this is what I am. And the other person says, I can't take it like this. Please do something about that. That's Rajoguna. Why don't you leave me alone? I want to, I am keeping the right. I'm not coming and telling you what you should do. Why do you have to come and tell me what I should do? That's Rajasguna. It's already that one is pushy, always. 
Ah, that I go to my guru and say, Guruji, tell me what to do. That is solicited advice. I am asking for it from somebody who can give it. But what, why should I receive unsolicited advice from all sorts of well-wishers who want to come and tell me, you should do like this. Tell that to your mom, you know, why do you come and bother me? No, why do you need to be so much of a well-wisher and spoil my peace? In Japan, they call this wa, wa, the harmony. Every house, every person, every household has the right to harmony. Like if the neighbors shout too loud, if they play music too loud, if they cook some food which is stinking and the vapor from that food goes through the window in your house, they disturb your va. Like I have this elementary right. I have the right to my va. Please don't tread over my limits. Of course, I'm not talking in my name now as a person. I'm talking as a principle. Everybody theoretically should have the right to their va. In the case of some people who become a public person, like I, people call me on the telephone, come at my door. There is not much va if you take me personally, but I have accepted that role. I am playing that role because it is my dharma to give myself in a certain way to my pupils, to the world, I want to be of service in this way. And if I chose to carry this on my shoulder, then yes, I'm giving myself. And being a public person, I cannot sit in my Zen garden and look at the rocks in my Zen garden, how they slowly grow up. I, that's a luxury which I cannot afford. Some other people can. And therefore, I'm not talking about, if, about myself personally. And again, there can be private situations, particular cases, where a person offers themselves, takes upon themselves a dharma which contains a certain amount of interference with the world. Then I open the door to my house, and if I have an open house, then I should not expect va, because I have asked for it, because people are coming there. But otherwise, in the society, for every person, Everybody has the right to his or her va. Remember this also in relationships. Because we are a tantric school and much is put into relationships. How much va do you give to your partner? Is your partner having va or are you woody woodpecker to your partner? All the time. There were societies which were conceived very wise. Every man and every woman in that society has the right to their va. When you live in va, you can grow up, meditate, slowly, slowly form a vision of the world, a concept of the world. Thus, remember that this is a very typical thing that rajas disturbs the things. There are people who, for example, always complain. Always. Like they would always want to see other people doing something to get things better. 
that's a lack of va. That's rajas guna. There is a desire. There is an ambition. Things are not good the way they are. You have to do them better. And usually it's not you who has to do something. It's someone else. Swami must do something. Reiner must do something. Whoever, the police of Thailand must do something. Everybody must do something so that you can be happy. But you are never happy because the desire is without end. And once a gap is filled up, there comes another desire. Because you are like the reclining tower of Pisa. If you lean, you lean more. It never stops from leaning. Now, if somebody says, oh my God, the tower of Pisa is reclining, push it, push it. It keeps reclining. The desire keeps going. The desire never stops. The Rajas Guna never stops. People always say, oh, I just want uh, my mother to do this. I just want my friend to do this. And I just want my lover to do this. And then everything will be fine. No, it won't be. It won't be. Parents are discontent with their children. They say, oh my God, you are preparing to become a medical doctor and now you have got caught into this terrible snare which is Agama Yoga and you are doing yoga and you screwed up all the education and all the things for which we, our parents, have prepared you for and now you are... And then after two years of Woody Woodpeckering you all the time, they eventually come and say, at least if you would have a natural, normal life, if you would have a job like everybody and maybe a girlfriend or a boyfriend and a child, that would be fine. Do you think that if you would get a job and make a child, your parents would suddenly be without Rajas Guna and without desire and they will be satisfied? No, because the problem for which the cause for which they desire something for you is that they don't have peace in themselves. They want something for you. They can't live in their own va, looking at a stone in their Zen garden and meditating on it for a thousand years. They don't have va. They have fire up their asses. They are consumed by a desire. And then they say, you should do this. And you do it. And then they are dissatisfied for something else. I have met parents who told to their children, oh, you should just have a normal life. And, and then somebody else in the same family, or they did have a normal life, a so-called normal life, an average bourgeois life, and children and this. And their parents were pecking them for something else. There is always the next step and the next step. He who has a one-room apartment says I should have a two-room apartment because I shouldn't have the bedroom in the same place where I have my office. He who has a two-room apartment says I should have a three-room apartment because sometimes I get friends who come and visit me and they might want to stay over and I need to have a separate room for that. He who has three rooms apartment wants four. He who has four wants a villa. He who has a villa wants a palace. Desire is without end. It's like the reclining Pisa tower. It just goes on pushing that way all the time. It never stops. There is the impression that if you push in that direction, you will fulfill the desire. You will not. Because rajas does not get filled up. You have first of all to balance the rajas. What a wisdom, what a mind Krishna has that he sees with such an incredible clarity. He can boil down the whole issue of desire in a yogic way and say, 
actually what's the source? Why do people do the sin? Why do people cross the borders? Why do people cross the limits? And they don't allow each other to have va? Simply because of rajas guna. It's desire and anger born of rajas guna. The all consuming and most evil. This is the enemy here on earth. Technically, rajas guna is related in yoga because you are in a yoga school and you want to see that this connects technically with a lot of things. In yoga, this is related with a certain aspect of Ajna Chakra. It is Ajna Chakra with its three aspects, right, left, and the center, the Bija, which represents in the, which is the analogous, or it is the correspondent in Hindu, in yogic Indian psychology, to the three gunas. And therefore, Rajas Guna, corresponds to the solar aspect of Ajna Chakra. So therefore, Krishna says, if your Ajna Chakra is disharmonious in the meaning that it is too solar, then you are too rajasic and you are a sinful person. You will constantly step on other people's toes. You will not give va. <coughs> because you'll think you are great and smart and you will always try to give lessons and tell to people what to do. And actually then, this is the origin of sin. If you are curious to see that that is verified in your yoga literature, turn back to your presentation of the chakras from the first level of yoga. I guess almost everybody in this room has gone through the first level of yoga already in this school. And there is a text there which is about the chakras and the glands, the endocrine glands as described in Ayurveda. It's the most down-to-earth description of the chakras in their connection with the physiological thing from the body, the endocrine glands. That stuff which we have in the first month course, in the first level course of yoga. And there you are told what is happening with each chakra and also what is happening when that chakra is disturbed severely, like out of harmony. And you are going to see, if you read it, a very strange thing. The worst picture, the most dangerous, the most devilish sounding picture of all of them is for Ajna Chakra, paradoxically. Not when Manipura is disturbed, not when Svadhisthana, those are troublesome and they produce lots of stupid things. When Ajna Chakra is disturbed, read it again, the human being develops devilish sarcasm, cynicism, lack of faith, all the characteristics of the demonic and diabolic and satanic things are in that list for a disturbed Ajna Chakra, which is also related with mental diseases. Sometimes when people have a very disturbed Ajna Chakra, this manifests through a very disturbed brain, because the brain is one of the physical things in Ajna Chakra, and the pituitary gland and all the things there. And thus, there is always a correspondence. Therefore, when there are some disturbances at the level of Ajna Chakra, you can expect that a person has even some physical things. 
which make that person schizophrenic, borderline, distorted personality, paranoid, bipolar, and others of severe types. And then that person behaves in their life as if they are possessed by the devil. They suffer from severe mental disease, which in most traditional forms of medicine from Ayurveda to Chinese and from Western to you name it, are considered forms of possession by the spirits. Like you are possessed by dark spirits. That's why a schizophrenic person always ends in murder. It is written in the psychiatry books. Schizophrenia in 99% of the cases is ending in suicide or in murder. You read your newspapers and it says mother shot her three children then turned the gun on herself and blew her brains off. That woman was schizophrenic. She should have been committed in a hospital many years ago but because we live in a politically correct modern world we don't like to see people like fly in flight over a cuckoo's nest staying in a ward, in a psychiatric ward, or if we keep them there, we have to keep them there with color television and with automatic ass-wiping machines. So you have to spend $20,000 per day to keep them in a decent way. And then the society can't afford. So what is happening today is that many people with severe mental disorders are thrown back into the street. As soon as they are out of crisis, they are sent home. And they are tapped on the shoulder and said, take your medication. And of course, being crazy, at some point they stop taking their medication. And then the shit hits the fan again. And therefore, yes, disorders at the level of Ajna Chakra, Rajas Guna, as Krishna says here, can take very serious forms. They can alter one's personality and they push people into Adharma into non-dharma, into infringing upon dharma. And with this, Krishna has given us a great measure of things. This is also the reason for which in Christianity, for example, because that's where it was given, but it is related with Kabbalah. In Kabbalah there exist similar trends. The number six as associated to Ajna Chakra but not with Sahasrara is not considered to be such a positive number in itself unless when it is associated with something else. I will give an example in a second. And what is the number six? The number six represents like a snake which goes up but it doesn't go straight up in Sahasrara. It goes up but it goes up in Ajna. We are being told in the Judaic mysticism as well as Christian and Islamic that Satan Lucifer was a prince of light with a star on his forehead. Like the devil was on Ajna Chakra. The dominant chakra of the devil is Ajna Chakra. That's why the devil is actually very powerful. If it's on Ajna Chakra it controls all the eight Mahasiddhis. In terms of power, it can do almost anything because Ajna Chakra is the highest of the manifested chakras. It's the highest of the six chakras of the manifestation. And the devil has access 
even to Ajna Chakra. And six, which is the number of Ajna Chakra, you put it three times over like in the Judaic tradition, all things are being put three times, and it becomes six, six, six. 666, the number of the beast, the number of the devil. There are so many connections here which show that there is a disease in Ajna Chakra which can make that one from being a Bodhisattva close to Buddhahood can actually go to the opposite extreme of the spectrum. The number six do not fall into primitive superstition because the number six is not evil per se. For example, in the Sufi mysticism, a sort of Kabbalistic mysticism transferred in Islam, the Arabic letters are also ascribed numerical value, and the numerical value of the name of Allah is 66. But 66 is something else, because according to the Kabbalistic rules, when you have just two of six, 66 is the number of Allah, and 66 means six plus six, which is 12. And suddenly we got to one of the sacred numbers again. So because 12 is the number of the heart, is the number of the son, is the number of the disciples of Jesus, and all that. And therefore, this is a fascinating direction of thought. But what I am saying here is, there are so many connections here which show that this duality goes till the level of Ajna Chakra. There is a proverb, there is a saying which says, if someone falls from on high, the fall is worse. Like it's not the same thing if you fall from the first floor of a building or if you fall from the sixth floor of a building. If you fall from the first floor of the building, you'll get away with it. Maximum, you're going to get some broken bone if you really fall badly. If you fall from the sixth floor of a building, most surely you die. Or 99.99% you die. Therefore, it's one thing to fall when you are a small spirit. You are just a beginner in evolution. You just got a little bit of power. And then you start abusing that power and turn into a jerk. And all your life you spend it in stupid things. Technically speaking, you fell a spiritual test. You fell off the path. How much evil will result from that? How much hell will you have to endure for that? Not much. But what if you become a Mahasiddha with great powers of the mind and then you become tested by the dark side of the force? And then you become the next Darth Vader. You turn to the dark. Then you fall from very high. And that failure will be really bad. Because it can turn you into a devil. It can turn you into something very bad. This is the reason of it. It's the higher chakras contain in themselves the neighborhood of the supreme. And at the same time. They contain this lesser known aspect. For a tamasic person, to be rajasic is superior. You see somebody who is a couch potato, and you tell them, eat some chilies for God's sake. Eat some black pepper. Eat some cinnamon. Eat some ginger. You no know, 
do something to start stop being a couch potato you are wasting your life you are sleeping your life off you'll never do anything it is exasperating but then after tamas which is a failure and a temptation you move to rajas and if you overdo that then there comes another failure and another temptation which is much worse because the person that is rajasic can do a lot of evil unlike the person that is tamasic who because of their inertia they won't ever get to the point of doing too much evil because to do a lot of evil you have to put a lot of energy into it and a lot of effort and the lazy people the tamasic people are not willing to put much effort into anything whatsoever that's why krishna is so very right in defining the source of evil of sin as rajas meditate on this because for many people the rajas is out of control ramakrishna paramahamsa in the 19th century when he was asked about different human communities he said for example america he meant the united states is typically a culture which is rajasic simply because people have this enterprising thing they want to succeed if you don't succeed you die of hunger under a bridge in America. You have to be pushy. You have to be enterprising or else. This cultivates rajas. For example, in Denmark, you don't need to be enterprising because it's a semi-socialistic stuff and the, they will give you a doll, they will find you something and you can even reach retirement and you will be supported and always in Denmark the constitution says that there is no person in that country who cannot have a house and food enough for surviving. The state will give it to you for free if you don't have it. The society cannot accept that a person should not have the minimum decency for life. So in Denmark people are actually more tamasic because they, they are not forced by hunger and by desperation to do anything. In countries where you have this wild west type of capitalism like in the USA and some of the Eastern European countries and some of the Asian countries, people have to become solar and then people have to become rajasic. And this rajas is a double-edged sword because if you overdo it, this is how we have all the corporations, this is how we have all the capitalistic mania which destroys the world, destroys countries. All this money, the stock exchange, the investment of money the funds and everything which destroys everything because it's rajasic all these things from Microsoft to Warren Buffett's hedge fund it's rajas 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 more 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 push the envelope push the envelope push the envelope desire 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 and that is why follow it carefully because Rajas is one of the desire, one of the problems of the modern society. There are people who are tamasic and there are some people who are rajasic and their desires push them into the evil. And thus people don't believe in God because God is a nuisance. No? If you are a Christian and you want to bang the wife of your neighbor, then Jesus said, do not do the wife of your neighbor, do not do whoredom or something. 
And then if I have a desire and I'm a rajasic person, I say the heck with Jesus and his stupidities. My dick is iron hard and I have to bang the wife of my neighbor because I desire her. It's a desire. For desire, people flushed God down the toilet. For their desires, people deny God, deny philosophy, deny righteousness, deny Dharma, deny Buddha, deny anything, simply because desire is the big thing. And it is something very profound. It's not just an emotion on the astral body. It is Rajas Guna at the level of the causal body in the Ajna Chakra. And that automatically creates a very difficult to control thing. To control the gunas is as difficult as to control one's karma. Those energies are almost comparable, almost at the same level. That is why meditate intensely onto this. Because the source of evil in a relationship, in a family, in the va in the harmony of the society and everywhere is this Rajas Guna is crossing the line all the time going and telling to other people what they should do how they should do it and all the rest meditate because it's an important lesson for yourselves you will see that the great mystics that's why they praise peace all of India with all its spirituality and they seem to have diluted to something which sounds very new age-ish or because everybody drinks for world peace, no? And the Babas of India, the Sadhus from India, after they do something, they write something, they comment something, they say, Om Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Peace. Shanti means peace. It's Om, peace, peace, peace. The ancient salutations was peace be with you, both in the Judaism and the others, peace be upon you. In Islam, no, salam alaikum, peace be upon you, peace be upon the Prophet, the great Prophet Muhammad. Everybody looks for peace. The, the Hesikas, the most esoteric part of the Christian Orthodox Eastern part, they practice the prayer of the heart and the the, their trend, their society, which is called Hesychasm, Hesychia in Greek, maybe I don't pronounce it correctly, is called, it means appeasing, appeasement. All the prayer of the heart is done for reaching appeasement. Even in Kashmiri Shaivism, which is one of the most esoteric and elite teachings, the accomplishment of Anavopaya, the path of the individual, which amounts into the first significant states of Samadhi, is called Chitta Visranti, the appeasement of the mind, that you get peace in your mind, and your mind can stay, and you can meditate, and you don't get restless, and so Everybody, Hindus, Christian, Kashmirians, Muslims, Jews, everybody speaks about peace, and this peace is clearly not the peace among nations. Because Jesus says it very clearly. He says, don't think I came to bring peace. Because I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And indeed, people following Jesus, they didn't have much peace, did they? They were crucified, they were provoked, they were challenged. Like Jesus said very clearly, 
If you imagine that I'm bringing a couch potato, Thomas thing, in which everybody will say, oh, I'm Christian, therefore I can doze here for all eternity. It's not, because Jesus said, I'm going to stock fire under your asses. I'm going to bring you to boiling point. I want you to want to come to the point where you love God. So this peace is not the peace, the actual peace of the daily life and the peace between nations. The peace between nations and the peace between individuals is good, is excellent. But this peace is the peace where you are not possessed by rajas. Rajas, guna, is not torturing you anymore, like stand up and do something, stand up and do something. No, I don't stand up and I don't do anything. I'm a wise person and I can stay in my room. The fathers of the desert locked themselves into a cell for 20 years. Nothing on the walls, just a white cell so you can lose your mind completely. And their main enemy was Akedia, boredom. They would get deadly bored by staying for years in a whitewashed room with nothing. Bang their head against the wall, start talking alone, masturbating senselessly and so on because they're getting bored. And if you manage to cross over this, you reach to peace because when you stay in a room for 10 years, you are not rajasic anymore. You, you will eliminate this devil from your mind which says, go out there and do something. Peace. Om Shanti Shanti Shanti. That is the message. Let us spend a couple of minutes absorbing this fundamental message of the world spirituality through the mouth of Krishna and then let's stop for tonight. And that will do. With this we finish for tonight. Namaste to all of you. And peace.